Hello, and welcome to the 18th episode of the Good Samaritan HealthCast. I'm your host, Clint Cubo, and today I'll be handing it off to Dr. Scott Stein. He'll be talking with Drs. Allison Thomas and Bradley Vaux about general surgery and surgery services here at Good Samaritan. Hello, my name is Dr. Scott Stein. I'm a family physician here in Vincennes, Indiana, and Chief Medical Officer of Good Samaritan Physician Network. I am joined today by two of our general surgeons. Uh, Dr. Allison Thomas and Dr. Bradley Vaux. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about general surgery today, uh, a little bit about their backgrounds and also preferences in general surgery. Uh, so kind of to lead off with, um, would you like to take a moment and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, background, training, and so forth, Dr. Thomas. Well, I'm a general surgeon by training. I did my training in New Jersey where we got lots of exposure to lots of trauma and other complicated surgeries. And I came to Vincennes because I like the bread and butter surgery and want to keep people closer to home to have their colons resected or the hernias versus having to send them out of town. Excellent. Dr. Vo. And I'm uh, Bradley Vo. I uh, did my uh, training at um, Marshall University uh, in Huntington, West Virginia. Uh, great training there. Uh, a lot of exposure to open as well as laparoscopic and robotic surgery. Um, my wife and I settled here and love the town, love the hospital. And I, uh, going forward, would like to provide anything that I'm capable of doing for the community here. Excellent, thank you. So one of the things we might just kind of lead off with is what all do general surgeons do? Because I think sometimes people get confused a little bit about what areas you particularly practice in. So let's talk a little bit about uh, all the scope of general uh, surgery. You wanna tell us a little bit about what all general surgery you've been involved in the past? Well, general surgeons, we like to claim we're the last generalist left at home outside the family doctors. We take care of a little bit of everything. So. Anything skin related, especially the bigger stuff that the dermatologists don't feel they can do in the office or might need a skin graft. And then we really like the belly. So any of the organs in the abdomen typically is our territory and will help fix them, even if it includes fixing the abdominal wall. So your gallbladders, your appendixes, your hernias, your colons. Yeah. Dr. Vo, you had mentioned uh, different types of surgery. Can, can you talk a little bit about, because I don't know that everybody understands traditionally how uh, like appendectomies have been taken out mm -hmm. versus laparoscopic sure. uh, cholecystectomies, um, because those are very different worlds and that's sure. changed a lot in the last 25 years. Sure. Uh, with, with, uh, you know, as times go on and, and it's, it's very, very interesting looking back in the history and how we do surgery, which is much better nowadays with new technology, but uh, the, the shift is towards more uh, what we call minimally invasive, in another word, uh, doing surgery with small incision uh, and, and with the, you know, advancing optics and, and instrument we're able to accomplish, whereby in the past, if you have a uh, appendix that is bad that needs taken out, you would have a bigger incision in your abdomen, uh, of course, resulting in more pain. Nowadays, uh, most of the time, we should be able to take it out with tiny little incision you can barely see after surgery uh, and done safely, of course. And, and along the same line, you would also have, um, you know, your gallbladder removed in the past. Uh, we're talking about that big of a decision here. And of course, it's a lot of pain, but uh, majority of the time now, we should be able to take it out with a four small incision. Um, mm -hmm. What does that mean for patient? Less pain uh, for the patient. Um, and, you know, when you have a smaller incision, less chance of it getting infected or a smaller incision, infection are easier to manage. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a lot of times, less time in the hospital and uh, going back to their daily activity or work uh, in, in a shorter period of time. 
So, Dr. Thomas, as Dr. Vo was talking about there, I think really what matters to the patient is that recovery time. Mm -hmm. So, can you tell us a little bit about like classically uh, time in the hospital for appendicitis or cholecystitis with cholecystectomy versus what we typically expect now? So, classically, the joke always was people would get admitted for a gallbladder. We'd cool them off for a week or two. Then we do our big open incision, and then they'd recover for two weeks. So, a gallbladder was like a month-long admission. Nowadays, if you come in with acute cholecystitis, which is when it's inflamed and actually needs antibiotics, versus biliary colic, which is something you might see in the office and we do electively, typically we can do surgery the next day and get you home the day after that, assuming you're not super sick. Which is, is spectacular. And this is actually uh, spanning all surgical areas. Mm -hmm. If we look at orthopedics, if we look at general surgery, if we look at urological surgeries, the amount of time that patients are spending in the hospital is much shorter. Mm -hmm. And it really has everything to do with the techniques that you all are learning, mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily the pathology of the disease, but sure. the fact that how you are handling it now surgically uh, involves much shorter recovery times, much less risk to the patient. Mm -hmm. um, and Dr. Vo, you had mentioned the minimally invasive surgery. That also applies to like colon type surgeries as well, correct? Absolutely. Uh, and then traditionally in the past, you know, it's one of those where it, whether you have cancer or you have an inflamed colon from uh, diverticulitis, uh, we say, uh, then most of the time you would end up with a very big incision uh, down the midline here. And uh, we see that often when people have surgery in the past. Um, and uh, nowadays we can actually uh, remove uh, or do uh, colon cancer surgery with uh, also a small incision as well. And what that means for the patient is the less uh, you are touching the intestine by your, with your hand, the earlier the intestine were able to recover and wake back up and work properly in, in the layman's term. Uh, and of course, less, less um, pain for the patient as well. Mm -hmm. But with that being said, you know, we always, uh, you know, we, we're not gonna do any type of surgery that are not um, adequate for the patient. So we, we came a long way, but now um, laparoscopic or small incision surgery are, uh, as good, if not better, than open surgery for these type uh, of, of, uh, of diseases. Sure. Um, so we've talked a little bit about infectious type problems. So uh, appendicitis, cholecystitis. What about times when the, the body structure just sort of fails, when we talk about hernias? People frequently ask about, well, what is a hernia and what, what do I do about it or when do I need to do something about it? So our abdomens are lined with muscle and that muscle has a strong layer called the fascia. Sometimes, unfortunately, that fascia will get a hole in it. All of us have holes normally at birth, whether they're in our inguinal canal because your testicle started in your belly and went down, or our belly button where our umbilical cord was. So those can sometimes get bigger as we get older, or if we've had surgery, sometimes those incisions can become a hernia. And since we have a hole in that hard, in that strong part, things from the inside can pop out. They can be concerning because they can be discomforting. They can cause pain with activity or heavy lifting, and then they become an emergency if they get stuck. So if you have a hernia and you notice it's red or it gets hard as a rock, that's a reason to come to the emergency room for emergent evaluation. But typically we can repair these in an elective setting before they become a problem. And we do use mesh, which helps prevent risk of recurrence, sometimes as low as 4% chance that that hernia will come back. And these we can also do laparoscopic too. Yeah. And so I think a lot of times people get confused. Hernias are very common. Mm -hmm. It's something that we see commonly in patients that come in. Sometimes patients complain of symptoms with these. Sometimes they are noted on exam and they have no symptoms at all. Dr. Vo, how, how do patients differentiate um, when to get something fixed and when to watch something? 
Uh, that's that's something where you know you, you that's that's what we're here for, and and the and primary care physician is play a very important role in this. Um, you know, as as you have a certain type of type of symptom that you're concerned about, maybe you went on the internet and read something about it. If it's bothersome to you enough to you, you should actually go see a, a provider to get it checked out. And then, of course, you know, you, 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 the primary care physician, somebody you would be in tune to this. And if any concern, we're more than happy to see them, evaluate mm -hmm. them. Uh, we're a general surgeon or surgeons in general. We love to operate, but we don't do it for just for any reason. So we uh, would talk to you, explain any question, get the appropriate study, make sure that you need the surgery before going forward. And, uh, you know, we see people and do surgery all the time, but patient maybe they haven't had surgery before, or they will only have this one surgery and never had it again. So therefore it's, it's a lot of question. And, and we want to be here, answer the question they have, make sure that uh, whatever problem they have, we address it. And, and give them the uh, adequate or appropriate surgery. So when we're talking about hernias, is there a particular size, like if I have a little tiny hernia versus a really big hernia, is there a greater risk associated with the really big hernia versus the smaller hernia? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so the, the, the way we think about it is, you know, uh, the strength layer, like Dr. Thomas said, is, is holding your intestinal content, so your intestine inside. Uh, so you can range from, let's say your umbilicus about that small, uh, to somewhere inguinal hernia big. And we see a, a range of, and some people uh, are more um, able to handle pain a bit better. So they wait around. They saw a bulge there, but kind of ignore it. Um, and, and the one thing I said to tell patient is, um, once you have a hernia, it doesn't actually go away. Uh, there are historically, there are funny treatment where you put some kind of compression in that area, but the problem could become where you essentially temporizing the solution and as you go further, it just get bigger and bigger and harder to repair. Now, when it comes to size, uh, we know that smaller size defect uh, are more, uh, um, I guess, predisposed to getting either the fat from your abdomen or the intestine to be stuck in there. The bigger uh, it is, the less likely uh, to do so. Uh, but you know, you never want to wait until that point. If you Taking a shower and suddenly you saw a bulge in this groin area, a bulge anywhere in your body, uh, and it's causing you pain. You should definitely uh, go see uh, your your doctors, um, uh, either primary care physician or us. Make an appointment. We're more than happy to sit down and talk to you about it. And I think that's one of the misunderstandings. A lot of patients don't think about the fact that if they have a small hernia, that actually may be greater risk mm -hmm. because the bowel, the intestines, the fat can't move freely in and out of that opening. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times we'll have patients that sort of blow off those early smaller hernias. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the other considerations I think, too, you can maybe speak to because you had mentioned mesh is how does the repair of a one or two centimeter hernia versus a four centimeter hernia or a six centimeter hernia or something like that, how does that differ and maybe speak to that as it pertains to the mesh? Well, the smaller the hernia, the less likely you are to need mesh. They typically say if the hole's less than two centimeters, you can close it primarily without mesh. If it's greater than two centimeters, then we start talking about mesh, which you hear mesh, you hear it on the news. It's just polyester sterile that's made into a mesh-like thing that acts as reinforcement. And the newer meshes are really cool. The older ones had smaller holes or thicker. Your body didn't really grow into it well, so you never got blood supply to it. So if it got infected, it automatically had to come out. The newer meshes are thinner, lighter weight. You're not likely to notice them. But also your tissue grows into them better, so they incorporate better and do a better job than the older ones do. But also if they do get infected, which is unfortunately 
a low risk but potential complication, we can actually get antibiotics to them and sometimes salvage them. And I think that's an important thing that you brought up. A lot of patients will come in and they know that they have a hernia, but they have a lot of trepidation about mm -hmm. mesh because they have seen all of the lawyer advertisements mm -hmm. on TV and so forth. But it's important to realize that that's really standard of care to mm -hmm. use that mesh. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's not something to be fearful of. In fact, all of the modern meshes and so forth perform great. It's mm -hmm. really in the early days of when mesh was being used um, and the evolution of that mm -hmm. mesh, it's changed tremendously, Absolutely. much like many things. In, mm -hmm. in medicine. Yeah. Um, now, as we talk about hernias, one of the ones that comes up frequently is hiatal hernia. Uh, so uh, people frequently ask me about hiatal hernia. They have Googled their symptoms. They've looked up heartburn and reflux. Um, and there are things to do about hiatal hernias now. If we sure. went back uh, many years ago, some of the surgeries were pretty extreme to sure. correct this and, and recovery was not great. And there were complications and problems afterwards. Uh, Dr. Bo, can you speak a little bit about uh, hiatal hernias and, and the surgery associated with the correction of that and what people can expect. Sure. Um, and, you know, hiatal hernia is, is again, it's, it's a weakness of the strength layer or something holding something back in a certain place and not supposed to let it go to somewhere else. Hiatal hernia in the sense that, you know, in, in when your your food pipe or your esophagus are down to the, uh, the abdominal cavity uh, to connect to your uh, stomach, uh, there is a two muscle there. Uh, and, and a little bit of a layer to hold it in place to prevent your stomach from sliding up and down. And, and actually, you want to do that because, of course, I never want a, my whole stomach in my chest. Um, however, uh, there are some people who just get it. There are, we know some of the predisposing factors such as, you know, chronic cough that would increase the pressure in the abdomen to push that upward. Uh, chronic constipation would play a role as well, or, you know, in some time we can attribute it like similar to other hernia where people consistently do a lot of lifting, but a lot of it, we just don't know the reason why, but that area is weak. So then for what happened then is your stomach tend to either slide up and down into that area. And then what happened is, you know, there's a lot of acid to produce to help you digest food in the, uh, the, the stomach. So therefore, you don't want that to go up and down. And by by that weakness, it, it allows it to do so. So you might feel some heartburn after you eat um, and, you know, a little bit of more chest, chest pain or things just going back up after you eat and funny taste and things of that nature. Uh, you get to get definitely get it checked out. Um, and, and, and there are, you know, medication we can start to treat them. Um, and, uh, you know, we can do uh, endoscopy to evaluate and then kind of walk down the step. Traditionally, again, you would have a bigger incision uh, and longer recovery time. There's a lot of swelling and things of that. So, but nowadays we can also correct that with uh, for a small incision. And uh, it has come a long way. We're talking about back then where, you know, um, open surgery, you'd be in the hospital three or four days. That's the best case scenario. And then even five years ago, when you have these done with a small incision, you still have to be in the hospital maybe two or three days or two days at best. Nowadays, uh, we can actually do it where we do it uh, and, 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 and everything go well. And uh, in the morning and later in the afternoon, patient does okay. We can actually send them home the same day, uh, but most likely we'll keep them over, over the uh, uh, for observation overnight. Just make sure that their pain is controlled. And after all, they underwent major surgery, and we don't want to push them out before they're ready to go. But uh, <laughs> uh, but it had come a long way where something like that it shouldn't be scared. Uh, like I said, there's a long workup before you get to that point. But it's okay to call your physician. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk to you about it and we will make sure that you're on the appropriate medication 
um, you know, and then look for any type of ulcer that we can treat with endoscopy, which we have an excellent endoscopy uh, department here. Uh, and then uh, if you need surgery, we're, we're happy to do that here and uh, send you on your route to recovery. And I think it's important to realize that heartburn and reflux are very common. Uh, more than 85, 90% of individuals have some type of heartburn and reflux at some point in time in their lives. They easily treat that with over-the-counter medications, things of that sort. But it's also important to realize that there are some red flag symptoms, persisting symptoms despite adequate treatment with medications, sure. uh, weight loss, mm -hmm. difficulty swallowing. All mm -hmm. of these things are, are red flags for sure. patients to come in and, and us to differentiate uh, occasional heartburn and reflux sure. when I go drink tequila and have, <laughs> have Taco Tuesday yeah. versus persisting symptoms. Sure. And and it's also more concerning as people get older. Sure. Um, so uh, it's important, again, to see your, your providers and then differentiate what is more serious. But it's also nice to know that if patients are not getting relief from medications, that there's surgical intervention that can not just cover up or treat the acid-related sure. problem, but physically fix the defect that's absolutely. associated with this. And, and absolutely. And it's one of those where, you know, it, it's just... Uh, some people would just have these. And like you said, after prescribing the uh, appropriate medication, it still happened. And there's just no way to go about your life if you are uh, a young, healthy person or, or just a healthy person. And that's the only thing that trouble you. Then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll offer a surgical solution um, to to let you go back to doing what you need to do. And it, I can only imagine this miserable of having those reflux disease on the medication you're supposed to mm -hmm. for a desired uh, amount of time that we need you to, and they still have uh, these reflux and not able to eat. Sure. So. Dr. Thomas, you had mentioned one of uh, your areas that you really enjoy, something I enjoy as well, which is skin cancer surgery. Uh, and certainly very common. We live in an area of the country uh, where people have spent lots of time out in mm -hmm. the sun, uh, both recreationally and also related to work. Uh, lots of farmers and, and this area of the country has been famous for melon farming and vegetable farming for decades. And uh, while that is fantastic for all of us, it has had quite a burden on our population mm -hmm. as they have been aging. And many of our uh, teenagers that uh, grew up uh, working in the melon farms and doing that, unfortunately, have had a tremendous amount of damage mm -hmm. as far as skin cancer is concerned. So um, could you tell us a little bit about some of the procedures that you do in the office? Because a lot of these things don't require going to the operating room to, to manage. Mm -hmm. So skin cancer comes to us in a couple different ways. Sometimes family doctors will have seen a lesion biopsied and it comes back skin cancer. They send us for definitive treatment or the patient goes, this looks funny and they come see us. So in the office, we can biopsy at the smaller lesions. We can actually fully excise them with appropriate margins to minimize them coming back, saves your trip to the operating room and an extra day off work. And things with skin cancer is they run a continuum. You can have the small lesion that you just make a little elliptical, take it off, close the skin. Other times there are areas where you don't have a lot of skin elasticity and we have to talk about doing a skin graft. And the thing I really like about being a general surgeon is we get to meet all the other specialities in town and in the bigger towns. And we have no problem when something isn't appropriate for us to take care of, to be like, hey, you know what? I'm not the best person to take care of this for you, but let me get you to the right person. That's why I always tell you guys is, if you're not sure what to do with it, but think it needs something surgery, send it over, have a second look 
of eyes and let's get it to the right person. Because that's yeah. what matters is getting patients to the right care. I think a lot of times people don't understand that sometimes we are sending patients to you for consultation, mm -hmm. basically to help us to understand. Maybe we don't fully know what the diagnosis mm -hmm. is or what the next intervention is. And Dr. Bo, you had mentioned that, that just because you're a surgeon doesn't mean you're always going to be doing yeah. surgery. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is seeing a patient and counseling with a patient mm -hmm. and giving them some lifestyle changes mm -hmm. to help them understand what their problem is. Mm -hmm. And then as Dr. Thomas had mentioned, sometimes that means, well, I don't necessarily think that I'm going to be the one doing surgery on you, but I have resources that will help us get the, the, the help that you need, the surgical intervention that you need. Because um, one of the great things I think about living in a town that's our size is we cover nearly all the problems that come to our hospital. There are some subspecializations that we need to farm out to other locations, but our patients like to come here. They like us because they know us, they know our hospital, they know our facility, and generally they want to stay here sure. and they mm -hmm. want to recover in their own community. Absolutely. Uh, and even if that's just a day or two days or three days in the hospital, they want to be local and yeah. be taken care of locally. Yeah. So sometimes when we send patients to you, it is. It's for consultation to determine, mm -hmm. hey, I'm not sure exactly what the next best step is, but I'm going to hand the ball over and mm -hmm. let you take it from there. Yeah. And we do it that way back too sometimes that we'll get something that we're like, well, we took care of the surgical part, but there's still these medical things. Dr. Stein, I need some help here. Yep. We work as a team, which I think works out really well for patients. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and uh, even being a general surgeon, uh, we love to operate. Uh, we, we love to do operation. But, you know, before that, we are, you know, trying to be a physician. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you know, for the for, for the benefit of the patient, if you come into my office for evaluation and you don't need surgery, that's the best case scenario. Mm -hmm. I would gladly, you know, rec make some recommendation where that would help whatever symptom you have or, you know, send you back to Dr. Stein who work on these things. But, you know, if we can say that you don't need surgery, that would be the best thing. And we mm -hmm. want to make sure that we educate you and the reason why you don't need surgery. And that doesn't need to be fixed um, because, you know, the it's great to do surgery. But if, if it doesn't need to be done, then uh, you don't want to subject patient to a surgery. Because, mm -hmm. uh, like I said, for us, it's easy to make a, a cut here, cut there. But for patient, this would be mm -hmm. uh, more of a, a significant life-changing event for them. So along with that, I want um, the patient to be very educated. So one thing I always talk to my patient in the office or in the hospital is ask question, ask question. Mm -hmm. Or if you don't have a question now, write it down when you remember and ask question, call the office because uh, best patient is the one who are well-informed. Mm -hmm. yeah. One of the things that you had alluded to earlier, Dr. Bo, is something I'm passionate about, which is colon cancer screening and endoscopy. And we have a tremendous endoscopy department here, yeah. uh, wonderful staff. Mm -hmm. uh, I get patients that come back after uh, colonoscopy and, and endoscopy that just uh, are super excited mm -hmm. about the experience that they had on endoscopy. Uh, anesthesia is so much better than what it used sure. to be. Uh, you know, I've been doing uh, colons and EGDs for about 22 years. And to me, the amazing thing is the tech Technology keeps getting better every few mm -hmm. years. The scopes are higher definition. The TVs are higher definition. We use the carbon dioxide infusion system now. The equipment is just so much better. And then the other neat thing is the devices that we take off the polyps with now mm -hmm. are so much neater and more varied than what we used to have. Sure. And I know that you you enjoy doing that as well. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, it's, it's part of coming to a smaller town. Is just want to maximize the skill that I am. Uh, confident of doing and provide services. So yes, um, I do endoscopy as well as uh, upper endoscopy, or they call EGD, looking at your stomach, your esophagus, and the small intestine. 
And uh, yeah, the so far my experience here has been great with the uh, endoscopy department. We have very competent, excellent uh, gastroenterologists here, uh, as well as myself do it. Uh, my colleague does it, and I know Dr. Stein, you do it as well. Um, the only part about endo uh, colonoscopy screening that kind of patients tell me is that the prep is is is, is hard. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, we haven't come up with a technology where we made the prep uh, prep would uh, tasteful. Uh, it will be a million dollar in, I don't know, invention. But once you get past that point, then uh, the, like you say, the, uh, uh, the advance in, in uh, anesthesia and the technology of the scope mm -hmm. that um, patients shouldn't feel uh, or know what we're doing during the, uh, the, uh, the endoscopy. And then once they go home, they do just fine. Yeah, there are patients, yeah. uh, uh, people out in California that pay to go have that type of prep done. Yeah. We, we give it to you for free before you have your colonoscopy. There you go. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's become very, very, very safe. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the risk itself, of course, there's always risk with uh, procedure and operation, but uh, with, with all the advantage that you mentioned, Dr. Stein, it has become, um, you know, more of a routine and, and, and minimal uh, risk. And so we want to get patient in and uh, get their colon screen uh, when you you reach uh, 45 is the recommendation nowadays uh, because you know uh, even though some some patient does not have any symptom or blood in the mm -hmm. or late weight loss uh, we'll be surprised from some we find and, and it's better to find it early and, and get it treated and get your cure mm -hmm. of your cancer rather than uh, too late and by that time we uh, essentially you know can't do anything about it yeah, and I, I think that's a really important point that there are, there are very few human cancers that we can actually prevent. There's sure. really only three. We can prevent cervical cancer mm -hmm. with pap smears. Mm -hmm. We can prevent uh, skin cancers by freezing, treating, uh, curatizing precancerous lesions. And we can prevent colon cancer mm -hmm. by doing colonoscopy and removing polyps. Sure. And I think that's something that not a lot of people understand is that many of the other cancers that we deal with, pancreatic cancer, lung cancer, uh, breast cancer, uh, liver cancer, those things really don't have a precancerous preventable state, mm -hmm. sure, but colon sure. cancer and cervical cancer and skin cancer, these are all things that if you get your screenings done in an appropriate timely manner, you can keep yourself from getting that cancer in the mm -hmm. first place. Absolutely. Um, and colonoscopy is easy and getting a skin exam done is easy and getting a pap mm -hmm. smear done is easy. And all of these things, if done at the appropriate intervals, keep you from getting the cancer in the first mm -hmm. place. Gotcha. Well, and the treatment when we find them early is much smaller and less invasive than if they become a complication. Absolutely. And so don't play ostrich. Don't stick your head in the sand and ignore the problems. Please get yes. your screenings done appropriately. And as Dr. Vo had mentioned, um, the screening uh, timeframe has changed with colonoscopy over the course of the last few years and that people are being encouraged to start earlier, sure. 45. Um, now, depending upon family history, that yep. can be even earlier. So yes. if you have a primary relative who has had colon polyps or colon cancer, we generally tend to try to start about 10 years prior to that. Yes. So unfortunately, we find some family members who have had colon mm -hmm. cancer in their 30s and 40s, and they need to back the clock up at least 10 years to make sure that they're getting screened also. Sure. And I'd rather do a colonoscopy on, on, on you rather than uh, a colon uh, resection for cancer much later on uh, in, in, in if you do have cancer. So therefore, you know, uh, as you get coming in, like I said, we're here for, for the community and for, for the patient. And so it's simple as go see your primary care physician when you reach uh, that age and uh, sit down and talk about it. And then, you know, schedule you for colonoscopy and go from there. Mm -hmm. 
And Dr. Thomas, one of the things I think is important to talk about too, because of the service in our hospital is if a patient has a cancer diagnosis, to understand what resources we have here as well. One of the reasons I chose this place was we have fantastic physicians, mm -hmm. but also the technology that we have is pretty spectacular. Well, and the wraparound services. So cancer, it's scary. No one likes to hear that word. Best doctors don't like to tell you that word, but the more support you have going through that, the best. And that's part of the reasons I came here. We have the cancer center where our oncologists are there. We have radiation oncology for those cancers that are sensitive to radiation. Everything can actually be done here. And the best part is we all talk to each other. So we have cancer meetings where we sit down and go, okay, I got this person who has this problem. This is what I'm going to do for treatment. Ooh, that's what you can add. Okay. And we make sure we get patients the best care they can have. And we have all the screening options. Our breast center is great for mammograms. We discussed our colonoscopy teams. Mm -hmm. Our OB-GYNs are great with the pap smears and the HPV tests. There's no need to go out of town to get those things done because we can take care of them. And like I said, we're very good at admitting things that do need to go to the bigger city and have absolutely no problem going, you know what? We can't take care of that here. So don't think you have to go get evaluated in the bigger city because if that's what you need, we'll get you there. Yeah. And I think you alluded to it, but uh, our medical oncologists and our radiation oncologists, spectacular people, oh, you know, uh, not that I'm in any hurry to get radiation or chemotherapy, <laughs> but uh, uh, talking to Dr. Gebhardt makes you like feel all warm and fuzzy about <laughs> getting radiation because what radiation, chemotherapy uh, and immunotherapy is today versus even five or 10 mm -hmm. years ago is tremendously different, meaning how patients respond to those therapies are much more effective, how mm -hmm. sick they become when they're treated with chemo or immunotherapies, patients are much healthier, sure. they don't suffer the consequences. Yeah. And radiation therapy nowadays, um, many of my patients will come back who are getting radiation therapy and things like that, will say that, oh, it's it's a situation where uh, I, I thought I was going to feel terrible and on mm -hmm. my days of um, uh, radiation, I feel great. And, and there's no issue with that. Well, so uh, I, I, I think that people sometimes are pleasantly surprised at how good that is. Yeah. Well, and especially you mentioned it, the targeted therapies nowadays with radiation or, or chemotherapy, we're able to be much more narrow instead of just trying to hit everything in your body to try and hopefully kill those cancer cells. We can have much more targeted, which does give you better results and fewer side effects. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think we should touch on too, which sometimes gets sort of glazed over or gets thrown back in primary care's lap is preparing for surgery. And I think that falls into when we discuss uh, elective versus urgent versus emergent. So um, could you give us some examples of like urgent surgeries versus emergence versus uh, routine elective surgery? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, when it comes to emergent uh, sur surgery, it's something what we see in the emergency room. Uh, these are, uh, let's say your appendix is bad, you need it taken out. Um, or your gallbladder is, is also inflamed and you know we also can admit you to the hospital and take it out. Or let's say that you have an infection of your colon when you came in and it's to the point where it's perforated, we can do emergent surgery. Um, Besides that, unless you come in and you know you have a hernia that you've been ignoring for a while uh, <laughs> and you come in because now it's been pop out for many, many hours, more than six hours and it's causing tremendous amount of pain, then, you know, in that situation, we know that, uh, you know, maybe a compromise to that intestine. So we have to do uh, surgery right away. And then, you know, on the opposite side of that, if you know you have a hernia there and you it, it, it been popping in and out, doesn't cause any problem. And you say, well, you know, let's go talk to a general surgeon. And I say, well, it, that hernia is not gonna go away. It's gonna only get worse. And, 
And if you agree to get it uh, done, then it's an elective surgery. It's more a control setting. We prepare you for the surgery. We're able to answer your question better. Uh, we get you to the appropriate testing for you to go under undergo anesthesia safely uh, and get that done. Now, in emergent setting, there's a lot of things that we want to do to give you the most benefit at that time, as in, you know, prevent you from getting sicker and sicker and end up in the ICU. So therefore, it's less controlled environment, but we're still able to do it with the aim of, you know, um, minimizing the 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 the, the consequence of, of that emergent surgery for for the patient and of course we have you know excellent icu staff here and i have been very impressed uh, since i'm new here so i'm very impressed with our um, anesthesiologists as well as a crna here they are excellent of you know um helping us get uh, get mm-hmm. getting the surgery going and the the mentality here is great you know if the patients need it um then we just provide it for the patient and we'll make sure they understand it and make sure we walk them through it uh, surgery is difficult, but uh, we at least would like to provide the initial period where we uh, put you at ease and help right. you take care of that problem. Well, and as it pertains to elective surgeries, what I think a lot of patients don't understand is there's lots of things that can be done in that preoperative period to make your likelihood of success with mm-hmm. surgery even better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think it's important that people understand when they have a problem that potentially is elective mm-hmm. that could be put off a week or a month mm-hmm. or six months, that there are certainly some things that can be done in that period uh, to kind of perioperatively prepare them. Any particular well, suggestions that you have for patients? A great example for things like hernias. We talked about how sometimes bowel can get stuck in there or fat can get stuck in there with the bigger ones the fat and bowel sort of move in there so we want to fix those in the optimal setting so we might talk about weight loss before fixing the hernia surgery quitting smoking cigarette smoking the nicotine can actually make blood vessels constrict so things don't heal as well if your diabetes isn't controlled if your hemoglobin a1c is elevated we might put off fixing a hernia until you can get that controlled because that will just increase the likelihood of this surgery being a success and decrease the chance of complications. So that's definitely true for some of these truly elective things that there's no emergency. We might go and say, let's take care of these things first so we can have the best outcome possible. And that's when we uh, we, we would need your help tremendously. <laughs> and we say, oh, well, uh-huh. you know, uh, we can we can fix this. Uh, but during that period of time, uh, the mm-hmm. risk of something happen where you would be sick is, is is somewhat low. So let's send you to Dr. Stein and see if Dr. Stein can help you know get your sugar mm-hmm. blood sugar down, or you know put on a diet regimen where you decrease the weight, and then uh, you know we'll, we'll do the the surgery. Not to say that we we'll put your life in any danger by delaying the surgery mm-hmm. anytime during that period, and it could happen where let's say the hernia. Uh, is is become incarcerated, then you know you come to the ED yep. or you call our office, mm-hmm. and we can schedule um, a more urgent type of surgery to be done for you. Uh, so yeah, we'll. Well, I, I think you know patients whenever they have a surgical problem, they feel somewhat helpless, like it's mm-hmm. something that's out of their control, something that they can't have any influence on. And I think it's important for them to realize that they absolutely have an impact on their mm-hmm. outcome. Uh, quitting smoking has a tremendous impact on risk of pneumonia, wound infection. Uh, 
when we talk about hernias, weight loss, getting a chronic cough under control, mm -hmm. which frequently or is constipation. Yeah. or chronic constipation or getting some weight loss. All mm -hmm. of those types of things are really important because that has an impact on what your outcome is. Absolutely. So we want to make sure that people understand that they do have an impact on that and the things that they can do to improve the likelihood of their outcomes. Absolutely. And with that, the HealthCast has come to a close. I would like to thank you all for listening this year. So this is actually the last HealthCast of 2021. So we will be taking a break the next two weeks. So we'll be back uh, the first Wednesday of January. So uh, thank you for listening so far this year and helping us kick off the podcast. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and we will see you in 2022.